Chapter One of The Room in the Dragon Volant. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Elizabeth Clett. The Room in the Dragon Volant by J. Sheridan Le Fanu. Chapter One On the Road. In the eventful year, 1815, I was exactly three-and-twenty, and had just succeeded to a very large sum in consoles and other securities. The first fall of Napoleon had thrown the continent open to English excursionists, anxious, let us suppose, to improve their minds by foreign travel, and I—the slight check of the hundred days removed by the genius of Wellington on the field of Waterloo—was now added to the philosophic throng. I was posting up to Paris from Brussels, following, I presume, the route that the Allied army had pursued but a few weeks before. More carriages than you could have believed were pursuing the same line. You could not look back or forward without seeing into far perspective the clouds of dust which marked the line of the long series of vehicles. We were perpetually passing relays of return horses, on their way, jaded and dusty, to the inns from which they had been taken. They were arduous times for those patient public servants. The whole world seemed posting up to Paris. I ought to have noted it more particularly, but my head was so full of Paris and the future that I passed the intervening scenery with little patience and less attention. I think, however, that it was about four miles to the frontier side of a rather picturesque little town, the name of which, as of many more important places through which I posted in my hurried journey, I forget and about two hours before sunset that we came up with a carriage in distress. It was not quite an upset, but the two leaders were lying flat. The booted postilions had got down, and two servants, who seemed very much at sea in such matters, were by way of assisting them. A pretty little bonnet and head were popped out of the window of the carriage in distress. Its tourneur, and that of the shoulders that also appeared for a moment, were captivating. I resolved to play the part of a good Samaritan stopped my chaise, jumped out, and with my servant lent a very willing hand in the emergency. Alas! the lady with the pretty bonnet wore a very thick black veil. I could see nothing but the pattern of the Brussels lace as she drew back. A lean old gentleman almost at the same time stuck his head out of the window. An invalid, he seemed, for although the day was hot he wore a black muffler which came up to his ears and nose, quite covering the lower part of his face an arrangement which he disturbed by pulling it down for a moment, and poured forth a torrent of French thanks, as he uncovered his black wig, and gesticulated with grateful animation. One of my very few accomplishments, besides boxing, which was cultivated by all Englishmen of the time, was French, and I replied, I hope, and believe, grammatically. Many bows being exchanged, the old gentleman's head went in again, and the demure pretty little bonnet once more appeared. The lady must have heard me speak to my servant, for she framed her little speech in such pretty broken English, and in a voice so sweet, that I more than ever cursed the black veil that balked my romantic curiosity. The arms that were emblazoned on the panel were peculiar. I especially remember one device. It was the figure of a stork, painted in carmine, upon what the heralds call a field door. The bird was standing upon one leg and in the other claw held a stone. This is, I believe, the emblem of vigilance. Its oddity struck me, and remained impressed upon my memory. 
There were supporters besides, but I forget what they were. The courtly manners of these people, the style of their servants, the elegance of their travelling carriage, and the supporters to their arms, satisfied me that they were noble. The lady, you may be sure, was not the less interesting on that account. What a fascination a title exercises upon the imagination! I do not mean on that of snobs or moral flunkies. Superiority of rank is a powerful and genuine influence in love. The idea of superior refinement is associated with it. The careless notice of the squire tells more upon the heart of the pretty milkmaid than years of honest Dobbin's manly devotion, and so on and up. It is an unjust world. But in this case there was something more. I was conscious of being good-looking, I really believe I was, and there could be no mistake about my being nearly six feet high. Why need this lady have thanked me? Had not her husband, for such I assumed him to be, thanked me quite enough, and for both? I was instinctively aware that the lady was looking on me with no unwilling eyes, and through her veil I felt the power of her gaze. She was now rolling away, with a train of dust behind her wheels in the golden sunlight, and a wise young gentleman followed her with ardent eyes, and sighed profoundly as the distance increased. I told the postilions on no account to pass the carriage, but to keep it steadily in view, and to pull up at whatever posting-house it should stop at. We were soon in the little town, and the carriage we followed drew up at the Belle Etoile, a comfortable old inn. They got out of the carriage and entered the house. At a leisurely pace we followed. I got down and mounted the steps listlessly, like a man quite apathetic and careless. Audacious as I was, I did not care to inquire in what room I should find them. I peeped into the apartment to my right, and then into that on my left. My people were not there. I ascended the stairs. A drawing-room door stood open. I entered with the most innocent air in the world. It was a spacious room and beside myself contained but one living figure, a very pretty and ladylike one. There was the very bonnet with which I had fallen in love. The lady stood with her back toward me. I could not tell whether the envious veil was raised. She was reading a letter. I stood for a minute in fixed attention gazing upon her, in vague hope that she might turn about and give me an opportunity of seeing her features. She did not. But with a step or two she placed herself before a little cabriole table, which stood against the wall, from which rose a tall mirror in a tarnished frame. I might, indeed, have mistaken it for a picture, for it now reflected a half-length portrait of a singularly beautiful woman. She was looking down upon a letter which she held in her slender fingers, and in which she seemed absorbed. The face was oval, melancholy, sweet. It had in it, nevertheless, a faint and undefinably sensual quality also. Nothing could exceed the delicacy of its features, or the brilliancy of its tints. The eyes, indeed, were lowered so that I could not see their colour, nothing but their long lashes and delicate eyebrows. She continued reading. She must have been deeply interested. I never saw a living form so motionless. I gazed on a tinted statue. Being at that time blessed with long and keen vision, I saw this beautiful face with perfect distinctness. I saw even the blue veins that traced their wanderings on the whiteness of her full throat. I ought to have retreated as noiselessly as I came in, before my presence was detected. But I was too much interested to move from the spot for a few moments longer. And while they were passing, she raised her eyes. Those eyes were large and of that hue which modern poets term violet. 
these splendid melancholy eyes were turned upon me from the glass with a haughty stare, and hastily the lady lowered her black veil and turned about. I fancied that she hoped I had not seen her. I was watching every look and movement, the minutest, with an attention as intense as if an ordeal involving my life depended upon them. End of chapter 1